Welcome to another in our series of Kehillat Israel podcasts. This is a recording of Rabbi Amy Bernstein's weekly Friday morning Torah study. Just when I have a crisis that makes me think, okay, this reading on the triennial thing, I know I started it 25 years ago. I've been wedded to it for all the reasons you all know, but this, I can't do it. I can't like, this is, I got nothing. I got nothing in this week's triennial, nothing. And I can't do this. And I, and I was like very close. I was very close to saying, we're not doing this. I'm going to read something else because somebody sent me this one wonderful thing about creation gets described as binary, but it's actually not binary because it says, you know, day and night. But what about sunset? What about sunrise? That's not day. That's not night. So there's all this non-binary stuff that happens, even though only the binaries get mentioned because they're to set the outside of the scale. Look at Emma Linda. She's so excited. Not teaching that today, Emma Linda. But I was close to abandoning my triennial. <laughs> but... I'm telling you, you know, the interventionist God that I don't believe in, like reached down and like moved stuff around so that I came across this article in my folder that I was like, oh my gosh, there it is. That's our learning for today. So that's what we're going to do. So I'm going to take us quickly to the text. The text is only like eight verses that we're going to do. And I'll show you why we're going to focus on those eight verses. Um, And then we're going to go to this wonderful piece that I think has a lot for us to talk about. So let's go first to the text. Let's go to Safaria. And this is where our text begins. Um, It begins at chapter five. This is the record of Adam's line. So Zesefer Toldot Adam, Toldot are generations. So these are the generations of Adam, right? Um, And here we go. And so we, and here, Emelinda, write it down, write it down. Verse two, right? <laughs> male and female, bara, baram. So male and female, God created them. It just said that the generation of Adam, God made him, oto, it, right? Zachar nekeva baram. Male and female created them. He created them. So, okay. So already non-binary. We saw it in the beginning of Genesis. I know we're not studying that this week, but here in Genesis 5, it's reiterated. So it's not a mistake <laughs> earlier in Genesis. It's reiterated male and female. Bar-am. God created them when referring to the human, the earthling. So rabbis have a field day with that. Those of us who love querying the text, have a field day with it as well. But we're not going to stop there. All right. So he blessed them, right, and called their name Adam, just in case we thought maybe it's a slip up. And it was talking about him and Eve. No, no. Male and female, God created them and called their name Adam in the day that he created them. Adam is them. They. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, we could we could spend a lot of time there. All right. So Adam lived 130 years. He begot a son in his likeness after his image and named him Seth. After the birth of Seth, Adam lived 800 years and begot sons and daughters. All the days that Adam lived came to 930 years when Seth lived. And then that begot that one and begot that one and begot that one and begot that one. and So this goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. And I'm like, I got nothing. For these people, I had nothing. And on all the days of Lamech came to 777 years. Then he died when Noah had lived 500 years. Noah begot Shem, Ham, and Yafet. Okay, so we get the birth of Noah and we get Shem, Ham, and Yafet, his three sons. Okay. I don't have a lot to do with that, to say to you about that. Okay. But here we go. At chapter, so we're at the end. We're, we're starting the third year of the triennial cycle. So we're coming to the third third of every portion. Last year, we read the second third of every portion, right? <clears throat> so now we're at the end of Breshi. We're at the end of the first Parsha of Genesis. So we've had creation. We've had both garden stories, because you know, if you've studied with me, there are two different garden stories, very different stories. 
So we have two different garden stories. We've had all of that. Um, we've had Adam and Chava are not in the garden anymore. They're now living, having children and earning, you know, bread by the sweat of their brow, all that stuff. Okay. We've had all of that. Now we get, now we get the generations of Adam all the way through Noah. And here we are at Noah and we're about to end the Parsha Breshit, the portion of Breshit. When men began to increase on earth and daughters were born to them, the divine beings is how it's translated here. The Hebrew says, V'nei Elohim, the descendants, the children of Ha-Elohim. We don't know what that means. God, it can't mean the gods if we're in Genesis. So the son, the children of Elohim, right? What happened? They saw Benot Ha'adam, the daughters of the human, the earthling, Kitovot, that they were good. Vayikhulahem Nashim, and they took for themselves Nashim, um, women, wives, Mikol Asher Baharu, from all the ones that they chose. So, Who's that? They saw the daughters of the earthling, that they were fair, good, whatever. And they took from them whatever they chose. So is this consent? Is this non-consent? They took them. They saw them. They took them. They chose them. We don't have anything about what the daughters of the earthling have to say about it. So keep that in mind. That is possibly one place this is problematic, is that the women are not given a choice. They're essentially raped. Okay. Vayomer Adonai, lo yadon ruchiva adam le'olam. And so God says, my breath shall not abide in the earthling forever. Since he's basar, you know, humans are flesh. Its days shall be 120 years. God caps humanity at 120 years. Now, if you know me, you know how I like to read Genesis. You know that um, there's like lots of stuff here about, wait a minute. So wait, all these people were living a really long time. And now all of a sudden, right, life is shortened to 120 years. Why? 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 Some scholars want to say this is because God is making it very clear. Y'all are getting too close. (coughs) Right. I'm going to limit you a lot more because you're getting way too close. How were they getting close? Is it because the B'nai Ha'elohim are coming, are having intercourse with human females and creating something else? <laughs> okay, so so just hold all that. Okay, now here comes another thing out of nowhere. The Nephilim were in the land in those days. And also afterwards. After what? After the Beneha Elohim, the descendants of Elohim came into the daughters of the earthling by Aldulahem Hemahagiborim and they bore they female Hagiborim, the big ones. You could read the heroes. Gibor usually means hero, but it could also just mean like the really strong ones, Asher Meolam and Hashem, right? So it's translated as men of renown, people, men of name. They made for themselves a name. Okay, we're going to have the Tower of Bavel talking about making a name for ourselves, right? So there's a whole bunch of stuff about that. All right. Now, pay attention. This is where we're going. Vayar Adonai ki ra'adam So, so yud vav sees that abundant, wide, remember rav, rabah, like wide, big, a lot, much, um, is the, it was the evil of humans in the land. 
and how every thought formed in its heart, rock ra'a was only evil. Kol hayom, all the day, all the day long. Vayinachem Adonai ki asa et ha'adam ba'aretz. Vayit atsev alibo. All right. The, right? Barry's, Barry's like, he gets it. So, Vayinachem Adonai ki asa et ha'adam. Noach, this has Noach in it. Usually, what is Noach about? Noach is about comfort. So, but here it means regret. In the sense, right? So in this sense, in this used in this way, it is that God, Yudhevafi regrets that God made Ha'adam, the earthling, in the land. And God's heart was Yitatsev, um, Atsuv was sad, was made sad. And God says, and here we get the decision to bring the flood. And God says, I will blot out from the earth the people who I created, people together with beasts, creeping things, and birds of the sky, for I regret that I made them. So does God regret just creating people or beasts, creeping things, birds of the sky? Who who is God regretting having made? What did the birds do for crying out loud? Okay, so that's an issue, right? Right? So the disjunctive of here, but Noah found favor in the eyes of Yudhei This is the end of Parshat Breshit. This is the last third of Parshat Breshit. Then we begin Parshat Noach, which we're not going to begin next week because we're going to look at the last third of Parshat Noach, Right? But you see what happens right before Parshat Noach. This text, even if you say, okay, well, somebody divided these chapters and it wasn't the Jews, fine. Even take away the fact that we're beginning a new Parsha. You can't, you can't ignore, which is what we're going to talk about this morning. You can't ignore that this text comes right before the story of Noach and the flood. Some scholars want to ignore it, right? They want it to just go away. Um, we're going to look at an article that talks about what might be going on if we take seriously that these verses are here right before the Noah story. Okay. Barry already has something. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, so we have uh, in, uh, in adjacent uh, civilizations, the Greek civilization, we have demigods. We have humans born of, uh, of gods and human and human females. Yes. Um, and and I believe the Chi- some one of the Chinese creation myths uh, speaks about the reason that some people are destined to be commoners, while others are destined to be great, to be emperors. And the reason is that the creator uh, goddess. Uh, uh, shook her uh, cloth with with clay, and some of the drops were big, and some of the other drops were small. So the and and the uh, the big humans, uh, the greats, the, the emperors were born of the big droplets, and the commoners were born of little droplets, and so and that will, is why you right. So we will look at a, a at this article we're going to look at. It's it's going to talk about the fact that a lot of scholars want to read this as a remnant of paganism that's still in the text, in the Torah text, right? Exactly what you said. Neighboring cultures before Israel, um, contemporary with ancient Israel, and past ancient Israel kept this idea of demigods, Jesus being one of them, Right. So Jesus Mary. is the son of right God and a human female. So it, it persists into today, if you will. Right. So some scholars definitely want to read this as some, you know, one of those stories that we moved past. But we're going to take the text seriously. We're going to reject that because the redactor left it in. So we have to we have to wrestle with the fact that the final redactor which is post-exilic, right? The final redaction is late. The, the redactor left it in. If we take that seriously, we don't have to, 
But if we take that seriously, which I'd like to, because that's what I can do with this text. Um, if we take it seriously, we, we have to sit with what that might mean. All right. So, Bert, you said if you have a comment. I am floored by the fact that God says, uh-oh, I made a mistake. What do you make of forgetting about the anthropomorphic imagery? But we have God if supposedly being perfect and God saying, you know, I made a mistake. Let me let me start over. That, that's all right. So I think what I'm we have to, by that. what we have to try to know, right? I love it. We, what we have to do, though, is remember that God is not perfect in Genesis. God is learning all the time in Genesis. Right. God learns constantly. God learns that Abraham is a man of faith. God learns, right, that, you know, humanity is is doing all the time, evil all the time. God learns a lot in Genesis. God is not all knowing and all perfect. And we're going to see in this article, certainly not all good um, in uh, in Genesis. We like to read that back into the text. That is not the approach of the text. The approach of the text seems to be that God God has has to learn some stuff before God gets to be the God that we're used to talking about. But yes, I so I I love that too that you know God makes a mistake, but it doesn't actually say a mistake. God, I mean, we're reading that in, and I know I know it's well, God there, says he regrets it. But God says God regrets making humans. That's where I go when I see this text is the incredible damage that regret causes. This is not remorse that leads us to tshuva, you know, remorse that leads us to change our ways and repair relationships. I'm not talking about that or shame or anything that can be a motivator for us to do it differently next time. I'm not talking about that because that's not what happens here. This is God regrets. God's heart is gets sad. And then God throws the whole project against the wall. And so that's the emotion, the state of mind. I, that's where I go with this text. Be very careful to move out of regret quickly because terrible things happen when we don't. I've heard it Things happen. I've heard it argued that the idea of the all-powerful, all-knowing God really came more from the Greeks than it did from so the Torah. Maybe. We're not going there right now. Um, Emelinda. Thank you. Um, I was noting the uh, questionable ethics around taking multiple daughters there is a question of consent there. And then there is God limits lifespan to 120 years. And then we have the story of Noah, which I have long said is popular for kids because it's the extent of sex education that a lot of religious families are willing to give their children. You need one of each. And I'm wondering if this is kind of pushed in here as a moral tale about monogamy. Oh, fabulous. <laughs> Um, you know, I would love to say yes, except all of our patriarchs take multiple wives and there's no problem. Right. So I'd love to say yes. Um, but unfortunately, polygamy was the norm in the ancient Near East. In ancient that doesn't East. change after Noah. It, it doesn't change after it Noah. It really doesn't. Sorry. I'm very sorry to say. Um, David, then Jody. Um, Amy, um, I never thought about this before, but. Is it possible that what we're seeing here is the precursor of God creating Tony Soprano (laughs) and it carries through throughout the whole Torah in God's view of the stiff-necked Jew and the Jew is always arguing and frankly the Jew is just a plain pain. Is it possible the redactor really wanted to cast it so, that way by saying wait, wait, wait. God regretted this? No, because you have to remember that the descendants, anyone who survives, is a descendant of Noah. Noah was spared. And Noah Noach found favor in the sight of God. So I would say yes to you, 
except for the fact that all those people got destroyed in the flood, although there's some Midrashim about Og Melech Bashan was a giant and he was one of the Nephilim and he escaped the flood. And that's how we get him later in the text. But, but we descend all of humanity from Noah. So, so fascinating. And everyone else in the world says our text descends from Noah. Wait, 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 unmute, unmute, unmute. What you're really saying is that God just fixed his mistake. Yeah, yes. It was a mistake. He said, I screwed up and I'm going to fix it. Yes. Yeah. Okay, Jody. Um, so I'm really interested in getting back to what you talked about with regret. Um, and it's really talking about the reptiles, the vertebrae, the beasts. What did they do, to quote you? So is it that when we are in regret, we do foolish things? We throw the baby out with the bathwater because he was only regretting the negativity that man has, not the beasts, the birds. So, you know, for me, the message is, you know, take a month, take a beat. But when we're in regret, when we're really regretting something, be very careful because you'll throw the baby out with the bathwater. And is that kind of that message, right? It's a message for me. Like I, I seize on that text. We had a whole discussion on it on the IJS thread. We were talking about something and I brought this up that, I, you know, God regrets and then throws the whole project against the wall and everything is, every living thing is destroyed except Noah and two of each depends which text you read, seven of each, whatever. So, so I pointed that out. And then our teacher, Jonathan Slater said, well, Noah is actually, you know, regret is really about comfort. Ma, ma, ma. And, it can, and so we had this whole conversation about, Right. So, but I, no one can convince me. I think I'm yeah, going with no one message. can convince me. But I, I believe this one of the messages of this text for me is if you stay in regret, terrible things happen. We okay. destroy things because we, we transfer our shame, our rage at ourselves. We transfer it. We were, what's the real word? Not transfer. Well, maybe transfer. You know, we, we put it on something else and that becomes Reject. our target because we can't handle, right? The Reject. internal feelings and conflicts and whatever that arise when we are deeply in regret for something we've done and are not ready to really fix it, right? By doing yeah. chula. And so if you don't move forward towards chuva and repair, you are bound. We are bound. We're created in the divine image, after all. We are bound to destroy everything around us, right? That did nothing, right? I, I think about when I, you know, you snap and you get mad at your toddler. The toddler's being a toddler. I, I remember saying to Bubby, why? I tell her to get her shoes on and why? She was, you know, Young, why can't she just do it? I've told her three times and I raged and Bubby was like, um, cause she's four, right? She was being a four-year-old. It was making me lose my mind. Right. And so it, we come out and destroy and lash out at all these things that, that didn't do anything other than be what they are, but right. But we'll take it all down yeah. when we're stuck in in regret. All right, Mark. Oh, um, you know, at the moment has passed. I just wanted to reply to something that Bert said. Just, it's not important, but the Greek gods were not transcendent. They, they were, fa- they f- had many failings. They were very powerful, but they were not transcendent beings. Right. A good point. Thank you, Mark. Okay. I want us to move on. Uh, okay. So we're going to move on. Um, wait. So someone just put in the chat, um, what is the difference between shame and regret? And is there a relationship? So I, I it's a very good question. Um, I, I really recommend you look at the work of Brene Brown, uh, who wrote a book, Dancing at the Shame Prom. 
um, and talks about shame. And it's a really important set of works, what she's done uh, around vulnerability and shame, um, really important stuff. And so I, I would love someday to have that conversation, the, the relationship between shame and regret, you know, where, shame and guilt. You know, there, there's so much there about when we screw up, like what what happens for us as humans. I think that's a great conversation. We need a parking lot for some of these conversations. I can just schedule a series of conversations on these topics. Um, All right. So, hey, we are starting a new year. We are starting Tilray together. So somebody keep a parking lot. One of who keeps notes? Lee keeps notes. Lee, right in the parking lot. Shame slash regret slash guilt. Okay. Thank you. All right. So here we go. Uh, Usually remember when I had the whiteboard you know, we put things in the parking lot on the whiteboard so many years ago, a million years ago. Okay, um, here we go. We're going to go back to, this, to, to the screen because we're going to go back to this article that I found that is so fabulous. I'm going to send it to all of you, not to worry. Bert will post it. All right. So this uh, article is by Edward Greenstein. Uh, I think he's out of Bar Ilan uh, University. And it's from a journal called Proof Texts. And um, it is presenting Genesis 1 constructively and deconstructively. And he's going to, with us, deconstruct. I know for Reconstructionists, this makes us a little nervous. He's going to deconstruct Genesis, our, some of our part of Genesis. So what that means is we have to... We have to take off the glasses that has God being creating a world that is good. And then when humans are created, remember we saw Tov Ma'od, very good. Take off those glasses. We're going to deconstruct this and take the text seriously that we just looked at. And if we do that, we have to read the flood story a little differently. Okay. So play with me here, which means willing suspension you know, of disbelief kind of stuff that you just need to suspend how we normally read creation. And let's go and look at what this what this uh, author does. All right. So first of all, we're going to talk about limiting people to 120 years. Hopefully you can see my cursor. Um Midway, you know, partly down this second paragraph. One of the most important lessons humanity must learn and you will note that I'm speaking in the present tense, is that God is God and humans are not. So that comes from limiting people to 120 years, um, that that God makes it very clear, humans are not God. Now, why that happens? We could have a whole conversation about why that happens. Is it because they were living too long, because they were mixing with whatever and getting too close? I don't know. But what it does say is that, and this author is suggesting we we ain't learned it yet that God is God and humans are not God. We are God-like. We are not God. Okay. That we humans still haven't figured that out. Okay. So I want you to hang on to that because we're going to close with that. That God is God and we're not. Okay. We're going to close our time together with that. All right. So look over here. <clears throat> I'm sorry. I'm still a little sick, so I'm struggling <coughs> to talk. Okay. Creation goes awry, right? We know creation goes awry. We just read it. <laughs> we just read that. Creation goes awry, but it is not because of anything God has done, but altogether on account of the human beings that God created. This is how we're used to understanding the flood. This is how we're used, whether we agree with God or not, is not the point. Traditionally, this is how we read it. Creation is perfect. Creation is good. It doesn't go awry because of God. It goes awry because of the human beings that God created. We've all learned this when we learned this story. Here we go. The section we just read is being quoted. The Lord saw that the evil of humanity was great on the earth and that every design of its plans was only evil all the time. It is this that made God sorry and sad and led God to bring on the flood. The disruption of the harmony of creation began in the Garden of Eden and was followed by the slaying of Abel by Cain 
and the murderous boasts of Lamech. We're not going to worry about what that means right now. But so, so it starts in Eden, right? That everything starts to go a little bit off the rails in Eden. Then we have the murder of Abel by Cain. Now we got Lamech doing whatever Lamech's doing. We're not going to worry about it. We might say QED and leave the matter at that, but for one thing. The episode that immediately precedes the flood story in which the sons of God take hold of the daughters of the humans and produce a special breed of heroic humans, right? So we we might just leave it there, but we get this episode. We might just say, okay, humans are screwing up and that's why the flood happens. It all goes awry because of humans. And we got the quote that humans are doing evil all the time. But says our author, we have this other text that has that immediately precedes the flood story. The redactor puts it right before the flood story. From a constructive, traditional theological standpoint, we might simply dismiss the story as obscure and insignificant, or we might bracket it out as a pagan relic, as we mentioned. Or we might harmonize it with the dominant story of human corruption, right? This is just another example of human corruption. Or we might ignore the plot of the story and focus on the outcome, the limitation of the human lifespan as a boundary marker between the divine and the human. But the deconstructionist in me will not rest contented with that. This person very like us, right? Because we we take it seriously. The orderly world that has been achieved by means of conventional readings of Genesis can only be achieved at the at, uh, at the expense of the suppression or distortion of this troubling passage. Take that in for a second. The orderly world, right, of Genesis that we like to think about can only be achieved at the expense of the suppression or distortion of this passage. Indeed, when one thinks about it, the conception of an orderly world that is exegeted out of Genesis 1 also rests on a number of dubious assumptions that one takes for granted only because they conform or conduce to the orderly world we have been taught by tradition to find there. This world not only depends on some very particular, possibly altogether inauthentic interpretations of words and phrases, but it also seems not to make allowance for the disorder that we may find in the world as we know it. Remember how we always talk about the fact that Torah is talking about the world as we know it, not a fantasy world? Our author is suggesting this text right before the creation narrative is one that pushes us to come out of some of the stuff we tend to assume that may be incorrect. Because we live in a world of disorder, not the ordered world of creation that we get or we want to read into Genesis. Okay. That's the world we live in. And that's the world Torah is always talking about. So he says, so we should take this seriously. The conception of a rule-bound benevolent deity may not match the realities we come to discern. Okay. Now that is a huge statement right there. The conception of a rule-bound benevolent deity may not match the realities we come to discern. And he's going to suggest this is not just about the text of Genesis. That this this is more reflective of the actual reality we live in. Okay. Deconstruction will respect and privilege no text over another, no passage over another. Accordingly, in a typical deconstructive strategy, we might view the episode of the divine human intermarriages not as marginal, but rather as the key to the meaning of Genesis. He's saying you don't get to just skip over this and call it a relic that got stuck in. Why do you get to do that? Who says you get to do that? What if you have to take every single text seriously and where it's located by the editor seriously? If the redactor puts it right before the creation story, it's for a reason our author is suggesting. The proximity of the passage to the flood story may be taken as the index of a causal connection 
God brought the flood on account of what happened between the God sons and the human daughters. Although Ronald Handel regards that causal nexus as part of the Ur text and not the present arrangement, don't worry about this, T.W. Mann reading synchronically writes that by juxtaposing this tale with the beginning of the flood story, the redactor has directed its etiological function away from the origin of the Nephilim or of giants toward the motivation for the coming divine judgment, okay? So that we were talking about the Nephilim, but it seems that there is a function of this text being put here, the the sons taking the daughters, that that is motivation for the coming divine judgment. Why wouldn't it be? Okay. As Susan Nidditch writes, and I want to go read her piece, I didn't have time, I want to go read it now. As Susan Nidditch writes, the positioning of Genesis 6, 1 through 4, just prior to the flood narratives, makes it just as, quote, as, as significant theologically as the garden story. Okay, wow, that's a pretty big statement, right? There is a tendency, even in reading this episode, to blame the humans, right? Human evil activity? come again? The way I read it, and I translate directly, the sons of God saw the daughters of the human that they were good. So they took themselves wives from any they chose. Yet the pressure to harmonize and blame humanity for everything, right? Um, leads people, biblicists even, expert biblicists, to reverse the plot and blame humans, to blame humanity. Okay, and we're used to that. I mean, that's what I was taught. I don't know about y'all, but that's what I was taught. All right, let's drop down to over here. This unambiguous understanding is elaborated in the Hellenistic Jewish text, one Enoch, in which the first of its five parts, known as the Book of the Watchers, a text known for ages in Ethiopic and Greek and now attested in fragments of 11 Aramaic manuscripts at Qumran. So we have Hellenistic Jewish texts. There's a, there's a book contained in one Enoch called the Book of the Watchers. All right, I want you to Google <laughs> the Watchers um, there is a clip I was going to show you from the movie Noah from 2014 that shows the creation of the Nephilim. They're called the Watchers. And it is a very interesting uh, take by the director who studied this text that we just looked at to make the movie Noah and wasn't ready to read over this text. So he has this whole three-minute scene about the Nephilim and how they're formed and what happens. And it's just fantastic. He studied everything we're talking about right now and then took it all the way out of Hellenized literature into Kabbalah and and studies how this appears in Kabbalah. And it is mind-blowing. So you have to Google it. The Watchers, Noah 2014, Noah 2014, that film. All right. But where was I going? Uh, So here it is. The Book of the Watchers relates to 200 angels conspire to seize each of them a human bride and produce a race of cannibalistic giants. (coughs) The flood is brought by God at the insistence of some good angels who want to stamp out the magic and fornication that the humans are taught by the wicked angels. So what is he saying? Why is he bringing us this? He's bringing us this to say already attested in Ethiopic and Greek and now texts at Qumran The understanding was it wasn't humans' fault. It wasn't humans. It was 200 angels who rape human women to produce this race of giants. And what they teach humanity is how humanity goes wrong. All right? So there's an early, early, early attestations of folks reading this text looking to figure out not figure out looking to say it's not humanity's fault it's written right here in genesis it's not our fault it's those either the nephilim 
or the offspring of the B'nai Elohim, the Giborim, the hero, who somebody corrupted humanity. And that was not about us. And if you think about it, if these are angels, and this is early stuff, people, this is early responses to write the late redaction of the text. Early responses say, it's the angel's fault. Well, who is in charge of the angels? Let me ask you. Think about that for a second. Who's in charge of angelic beings? Oh, that would be God. So whose fault is this really? This whole business of humanity going wrong, whose fault is it really? What is the instinct of these early commentators on the text, these early Midrashim? It is very clear to this author, and I'm willing to, to go there. I'm, I'm open. Um, the instinct is to say it wasn't our fault. Built in to the system is a flaw, and that flaw belongs at <coughs> the doorstep of the divine. Okay? All right. No, 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 no. <coughs> the angels are in God's domain, not ours. Clearly, God had no one really to blame but God's self. So why do we read in Genesis 6, 5 that God brought the flood on account of human corruption? All right, here goes my psychological people. It could be a case of displacement. God is upset with God's self and so displaces God's inner distress onto humanity. Or at the very least, God refuses to take responsibility for the fact that creation was never really altogether under control. God seems to have left in the created world powers that are at odds with God's purposes. God appears in Genesis 6, 1 through 4, which we just read, as a parent who has either failed to set limits for one's children or to exert control over one's libidinous sons. <laughs> and that's going to plague humanity for a while, isn't it? <laughs> Not that any of y'all were libidinous sons or anything. But how could it be so if the world God created in Genesis 1 was complete, perfect, and altogether good? Perhaps what we called our constructive reading of Genesis 1 did not do justice to the text. Perhaps our constructive reading misconstrued or suppressed some text in its effort to interpret coherently within a traditional Jewish understanding of the Torah. From a deconstructionist perspective, the reading that found goodness and perfection in Genesis 1 had chosen to be read that way from the start. It had inscribed meanings that conformed to its worldview in the traces of the text. A deconstructive reading, which we just did, will begin with a presumption of incoherence and imperfection and find fault with creation in the way that God, according to the book of Job, finds fault even with the angels. And so he translates Ha-Elohim to be the powers. Elohim is plural. And remember, it can mean God's lowercase g. Our author is saying, what if Ha-Elohim, the children of Ha-Elohim, are read as the powers found in creation? We read that the powers found creation to be very good. Elohim quotes in Genesis 1.31, Elohim says creation is very good. Well, what if we translate that as powers, capital P, meaning having something to do with the divine, but we're not sure what. <clears throat> but what meaning do we inscribe to the word in the word good? Most readers interpret it in antithesis to Genesis 6.5, where we read that yod heh saw that the evil, no, notice it's not Elohim here, it's yod heh saw that the evil of humans in the land was great. But perhaps more apposite is that what we read three verses prior to that in the episode of the sons of God and the human daughters, what if we read the sons of the powers saw that the daughters of the humans were very good. That is that they were pleasing, appealing to their taste. So if we read it as the powers, okay, let's, um, we're almost done. 
Bible readers, so so that so we could we could look at this a different way, that there are powers already not under the deity's control. Bible readers also take for granted that the implied narrator who is not identified with the powers and who tells about the powers in the third person is altogether sympathetic to the deity. But we who have read the book of Job may question a method of reading in which the narrator's voice and the voice of the deity are the same. We may rather find in the voice of the narrator an ironic perspective. The powers found everything to be fine. But was it? It is not the narrator who finds creation to have been pleasing, but Elohim, who take pleasure in their own work and then get upset when their work is no longer pleasing. The narrator does report, however, on the diverse creations the powers have made, meaning that darkness precedes light. Darkness is already there. Who made that? Maybe the power, right? So anyway, we're not going to go down that rabbit hole. Um, I'm just going to close with this one piece over here. Where is it? Over here, the human. The human disappointment of the power's expectations has been heavily influenced, if not predetermined, by the conditions of creation. The serpent, as Fishbane writes, may represent some fragment of the incohate waste and void, the tohu vavohu, that part of the world resistant to a fixed order. We may take the Tanaim of Genesis 1 as a token representing all the menacing creatures, all the elements of creation that make life precarious and uncertain. God may be pleased with creation, and it may for some reason need to be the way that it is. But that does not in and of itself mean that creation is good or makes for goodness. All right. So I'm going to, he goes on a little bit. I'm going to stop here. He goes into a midrash um, about, that is really uh, interesting. I'm not going to take time to do though. Um, So I said I was going to close. I lied. I just, I'll close with here. The other reason that our deconstructive reading of Genesis 1 is Torah is quite simply that it is true in the sense that it matches our experience of reality. Yes, there is plenty of evil that is produced by human beings working against the best values of the Torah, but there is plenty of other evils, evils of nature, things the Bible calls the workings of God that are regular features of God's world. I do not mean to diminish the evils that are perpetrated by human beings against one another on a massive scale every day. But I, who was born after World War II and whose friends and family have been stricken by illness and other natural catastrophes more than by human violence, I am no less sensitive to the ways in which the world is not only challenging, but sometimes absolutely hostile. Any honest theological narrative and any honest theological reading of a narrative needs to include in its master plot an explanation of the bad in the world for which we humans are not the ones responsible. Boom! Mind blowing. Wow. Okay. So I know there was a lot there. You can read it later. I don't expect you to have taken all in. I like, I've read it three times. What, what I wanted to expose you to was a deconstructive reading that takes very seriously a text. I was ready to skip over. I was ready to abandon 25 years of a commitment to reading on the triennial because I was ready to dismiss this text. And this article saved me, right? Because what does it say? It says, sure, you can skip over it. You can call it a remnant of pagan, whatever that's still here. You can call it whatever you want and call it and just dismiss it. That's fine. Mm, Is it really? Why do I read on the triennial? So that I don't dismiss this text. So that we actually confront even the text that you know I have a real problem with, right? Um, and the texts that we don't like and the texts that challenge us, but also these texts that we tend to skip over because they seem not to have anything to do with anything because we have a constructive reading 
And we know creation is good. And we know that it's very good. And blah, 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 blah. blah. Well, guess what? <laughs> Planted right there. If we deconstruct how we're used to summarizing what's going on, we have to take seriously the idea that the biblical author might actually locate the problem in the divine itself and in the divine's creation of this world. There's already an opening. It's not just our fault. Think about how that challenges the Christian reading of this, right? Some heads would explode. Like if they had to actually take this text seriously, like, right. And so, but I love this idea that there already with the biblical author is the possibility that built into, we don't need God withdrew God's self and therefore it left room for evil. Like Kabbalah has to deal with and God pours God's light back in the vessel shatter. And that's how we get everything we have in the world. We don't have to go that far. If you take this text seriously, we can say, from the beginning of the project, there are issues. And they weren't, they didn't originate with us. We're part of it. I'm not going to deny that. You know, I don't deny that. But it's like, it was, it didn't start here. All right, Judith. I think I'm unmuted. I am, I'm hearing also from the beginning of the Adam and Eve story, where Eve was blamed for I know we've had a discussion about that. And I'm hearing, too, that it was the women who corrupted the whole process, that they they saw that women were fair or good or whatever. And it was then that the problem began. Do you see any setup here of women as being subservient? No, I see this as a story about male violence. I see this as a story about male control and male violence being the root of why the whole project went awry, okay. right? Where, where he said, God couldn't control God's libidinous sons. They're called B'nai Elohim. So the sons of Elohim, who was supposed to keep them in line? Uh, that would be Elohim, right? Like who's, who's in charge of, of controlling male violent sexuality? I mean, I wouldn't even call it sexuality. I mean, I think... Because we know sexual violence is not about sexuality. It's about right, it's anger and rage and control. So, right. But I think here, it, the, libidinous, the, the libidinous greed is the problem. And thinking, I don't have to check it. I can take what I want and do with it what I like. That's the problem. The, the, the Bonota Adam are victims. Yes, and, but I'm thinking how women are still kept separate from men in Orthodox synagogues. It's like that's a relic. That's a whole other thing. So in terms, of, in terms of, yeah, putting on women that they could be so attractive that men would be distracted from their prayers. That's typical right. patriarchy. That's just, that's across the board, every culture. Mm-hmm. Every well, culture I guess, does this. I right? guess that's what I'm seeing here is the patriarch. Okay, but what I'm saying... But what I'm saying is those same Orthodox rabbis, if you have a private conversation with them, will tell you that the men are the problem. Yeah. They won't say that women are the problem. They can't They'll control say, But I remember I played basketball for Yeshiva High School in a very hot gym in Georgia. And I had to wear sweatpants and a polyester jersey that covered my shoulders. So we raised an objection and said, wait a minute. So I have to cover myself because of their libido. I have to cover up because they might be attracted to me. Yes. Okay. So I'm responsible for their sexual response to me and I'm responsible for controlling my own libido. So we have to control everybody's libido. Yes. (laughs) Why is that? I asked. And I was told because you can, they can't be trusted to. So I'm not suggesting it's good or right or fair. I am suggesting the problem. And I said, so do you really want to tell me that you think teenage boys cannot control themselves? What that says way more about them than it does about me. And the rabbis were right. Well, of course it does. Of course. But, But you all are the ones 
who can take action, they can't. So that's what we're seeing in this story. The origins uh, of yeah. that. Yeah. Well, it's not the origins of that. The world no, has it, always been that way. It's the author describing the world as it is. As it is. Right. right. Okay. And Melinda, she can't, I knew she couldn't. <laughs> uh, I am reflecting on a really beautiful passage that I read on uh, Genesis and the language of it is good. It is very good. It doesn't say perfect. And imply this this beautiful passage that I read that I feel like dovetails really nicely with this. There is the implied, and the work of humankind is to keep working on keeping it good and making it better. God didn't give us a perfect world. We have an obligation to work to make it better. And when it all goes to shit is when you think that you've done fine, you can rest on your laurels, you're entitled to this, whatever it is woman's body, for instance, and when you assume that you are entitled to that because you basically did it perfect and you're done, then you ruin everything. You have an obligation as a human being who is very good but not perfect to keep working on being good. You don't ever get to quit. And this is what Kushner says, that if God wanted a perfect world, God would not have put that tree there and said, don't eat. But God didn't want perfection. God wanted human goodness and human goodness can only come out of choice. If you don't have the option to disobey, how is obeying good, right? If there's no other option that if God wanted a perfect world, God would not have put that tree there and would not have said, don't eat. God wasn't interested in a perfect world. As you said, God was interested in human goodness and what human beings have to do to decide to be good. 100% love that. Dana Fine. So I was just thinking my connection to God has strengthened today because you know how it says we're made in God's image. And it seems that God learns in Genesis and God is not perfect and we're not perfect. And so this is a demonstration of, I want to say the reality of God. Indeed, God's not perfect. God learns. God tries to be good. So uh, I like that. My work here is done. The Torah study brought you closer to God. My work here is done. <laughs> right. Uh, yeah, right. Um, so I know I took up a lot of time with frontal teaching today. I, I know we usually have more time for, uh, for a conversation, um, but I so appreciate um, the ability to um, get excited and share uh, something like this with you. I know it wasn't easy. I know it's a lot. It's a mouthful. I get it. Um, but truly take time and, and look at the piece on your own if you like. Um, but I'm going to close us um, with God is God. And all you have to do is go to K iTunes. And you see all these albums on K iTunes. You go to Three Altos, which is Sarah Thompson, Paula Peterson, and me. And I thought I would play for you. God is God. And I have the lyrics ready to go. I believe in prophecy. Some folks see things not everybody can see But once in a while they pass a secret along to you and me And I believe in miracles Something sacred burning in every bush and tree We can all learn to sing the songs the angels sing yeah, I believe in God And God ain't me I've traveled around the world Stood on mighty mountains and gazed across the wilderness Never seen a line in the sand or a diamond in And as our fate unfurls Every day that passes I'm sure about a little bit less 
Even my money keeps telling me it's God I need to trust And I believe in God But God ain't us To get it right Let this little light of mine Shine and rage against the night Just another lesson Maybe someone's watching And wondering what I got Maybe this is why I'm here on earth And maybe not But I Listening to Rabbi Amy Bernstein's Friday morning Torah study from Kehillat Israel in Pacific Palisades, California. For more information, go to our website, www.ourki.org.